Lord, as the song, as we sang, in darkest night, you're close like no other. That's so true. We thank you for that. We praise you. Lord, today as we look into your word, we pray that it will it will give us encouragement for the weak and for our lives. Lord, the, for those who are watching online who are either traveling or are ill, and we pray for them, a special prayer for Carolyn this morning. And Father, we pray uh, that they would be encouraged, whether present or online or perhaps even hearing the recording later. So now, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. And now for something completely uh, different. So if you're of a certain age, you you know that was a tagline for a comedy show that was a spinoff of uh, Monty Python. So here's a first for me. No opening illustration. Oh, my goodness. So open your Bibles to John chapter 7 beginning in verse 53, and we will be looking up until 8, uh, verse 11. I'll give you a moment to get there because it's very important that you see what I see. Uh, And that is, in most of your Bibles, you're going to have the words above the text in a footnote or in a bracket saying, the earliest manuscripts do not include... Chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, some of you may have noticed this, and it may have confused you. It it may have scared you even. Some of you saw it and just passed right over it thinking, well, if it's important, somebody will say something about it. Others noticed it and researched it, and, and those people were thrown into... Uh, the arcane, that's a fancy word of saying mysterious, world of textual criticism. So for those uh, of us who have no idea what that means, I'm going to spend a few moments of explanation so that when I actually make an, an exposition of the text, you will have uh, something that you can put your confidence in. So I'll start at the most significant place that I know to start in the local uh, church, and that's what you can find on our website, the church's doctrine concerning the Bible. The Holy Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, is the only written revelation of God to humankind. It is inspired by God without error in the original documents. It is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. So what does that mean? What that means is that we believe that the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament were superintended by the Holy Spirit to ensure that we received all that God wanted us to receive. And we believed that that superintendence kept the original documents from error. 
Now, that day's writing was, was literally writing. It was on either parchment, that is some sort of animal uh, hide, or it was papyrus. And they didn't have a printing press. Uh, they didn't have uh, copy machines uh, or cameras. So they had to literally write with pen and ink everything uh, that they wrote down. And they were very careful in doing this because they recognized that this was, in fact, the word of God. The only way that they could make a copy was to have one uh, copy here and, and then work on another uh, copy over here. For example, John wrote the Gospel of John that we're in uh, right now. So copies were made and then they were uh, distributed and they were used and then they were copied and so on and so on down the road. Then over time, what happened was the original manuscripts deteriorated to such a point they could no longer be used. It shouldn't be mysterious to us. If you watched the news last week, you'll see that in 1829, there was a group of five cadets at West Point, uh, of whom Robert E. Lee was one, and they thought, wow, this is going to be uh, great. We're going to uh, dedicate this monument to the man who designed the fortifications at West Point uh, during the Revolutionary uh, war and we're going to put all this uh, good stuff in there, whether it's papers or or things made out of wood or or whatever. And so there was a very public opening, and so the West Point's archaeologist, Mister Hudson, with the cameras over the lead container and people all around, he opens it up, and there's nothing in it. Just dust, just nothing but uh, sediment. And so he was uh, quite disappointed, as were all the people who were there. He took it back to the lab, and, and he, he found a bunch of coins in there uh, buried in the sediment. What, what was the sediment? What was the dust? It was the papers. It was whatever those cadets had put in there that was made out of something that was perishable, and that was only 200 years ago. So the fact that we don't have an original manuscript shouldn't bother you, given that it was 2,000 years ago. But out of those manuscripts, there were others that were uh, made. So uh, this, we don't have any originals, uh, but we have thousands of copies. As I mentioned, what we have in this regard is a thing called textual criticism. And what that is, is the discipline of determining what the original wording was in a document when the original document no longer exists. And so it's a challenging uh, discipline that gifted uh, people are called to, and I'm not going this message, by the way, is not about textual criticism, but you have to know what's happening here in the text. You have to know this in order to be able to appreciate the story and its location. So we have about 5,800 plus uh, copies in the Greek language, all written down by hand. Uh, just to put that in uh, perspective, the average ancient author, in terms of papyri or parchment, what he has uh, remaining uh, can be counted on your fingers. 
So uh, I was impressed as a new believer when I read uh, Josh McDowell uh, wrote that from a manuscript, purely from a manuscript perspective, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for the existence of Julius Caesar. It's an amazing thing, really, when you think about it. So I'll give you a summary of my conclusions so that we don't uh, make this about textual criticism. And that is, and, and if you care to talk about this further, I'm happy to. So on my research, and I've held this position for quite some time, uh, based on the internal and the external evidence that's presented in the text, the passage actually seems to have been written by Luke. But it was about 400 years before it was included in the text. It was about 400 years before it was part of the canon. And uh, the passage was, was clearly known, uh, but it was like it was a passage without a home. And it appears that a scribe decided, well, okay, we're going to put it here in John uh, because it takes place in the temple. Its placement is actually quite strategic, and it deals with the theme of judgment, which is the prevalent theme in John chapter 7. So although the story probably belongs in Luke, and in many texts it actually appears in Luke and not in John, in all of these manuscripts that are out there, uh, I wholeheartedly agree with F.F. F. Bruce, who wrote that the text was a genuine remembrance of Jesus' ministry and is eminently worthy of being treated as canonical. For those of you, if you're not familiar with Bruce, he's probably the, arguably the finest uh, New Testament scholar of the last century. And, oh, by the way, he was also an evangelical, someone who believed that the word of God uh, was true. Now, why was it left out for so long? I can only speculate as the some of the church fathers speculated, and, uh, and that was uh, two that I'll mention. Uh, Augustine, or Augustine, who uh, you have probably heard of, and Ambrose, who maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But these early church fathers believed that the story was omitted because many may have interpreted it as Jesus not being as harsh on adultery as they felt Exodus 24 was. So in other words, they felt it was left out because people would have perhaps taken adultery more lightly than they should. So that's where you, you have this. This is the information that we have in a nutshell. But for me, uh, because it's contained in the majority text, and I'm a majority text guy, for those of you who that means something, that means something. For the rest of you, it's okay. It bears all the hallmarks that Luke wrote it. I mean, if you put Luke's writing and this writing side by side, it's the same. When you put it next to John's, it is not the same. And uh, you have Augustine and Ambrose who felt it should have been in the sacred text all along, uh, but was left out for sociocultural reasons. And I believe that it belongs in the canon. Uh, not only F.F. F. Bruce, but a whole raft of evangelical scholars believes it's there. And therefore, I'm going to be preaching from the text. Okay? So... If you never knew what those brackets meant, now you do. Uh, that's what those meant. 
And so with those things in mind, I'm going to do a little, not exegetical jujitsu, but maybe some expositional jujitsu. First, I want you to notice that the Bible, also that you hold in your hand, there's also a title. And invariably, that title is going to read exactly these words or something very similar. The woman caught in adultery. Now, the title indicates to us that the problem in the text that we have to address is adultery. The problem has to do with this woman caught in adultery. I argue that it's not. What? Let me say uh, this about that. The prodigal son is another example of this kind of mental misdirection. When you see a caption, you automatically go with that. Oh, oh, this story's about the prodigal son. No, it is not. He may have the longest play in it, but it's not about him. It's about a loving and forgiving father. Listen, when God is in the room, the subject is God, not the sinner. Because the whole business that God has in this world is to seek and to save that which is lost. Judgment comes later. So what we see here is that the very title misdirects us. Our discussion, when we think about the woman caught in adultery, becomes primarily about adultery and sexual misconduct. And by doing so, we actually no longer treat the text as written. That may surprise some of you. I hope it does. But by narrowing the text like that, it becomes skewed. Augustine was right. And because of its focus, after 2,000 years, we've still lost the point of the story. It is true that Exodus 20:14 commands, you shall not commit adultery. And I'll say more, a little more about that, but I want to talk to you about what the story is actually about. So let's read it. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. So remember now, this is the day after the feast. This was the day after the feast was completed. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing beside him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let me make a few more approaching comments to the the larger context here. First, John 7 is not about adultery. There's nothing in there about that. It is about how people were judging the Messiah. It is how people were judging him with the intent to take his life, to arrest and to kill him. They said he had never studied. They said he had a demon. They said he came from the wrong place. His witness wasn't true. And because of all those things, they were in the business of seeking to arrest him. I mean, we, and we saw how the people who were to arrest him last week said, no one, no one has ever spoken like this man. They didn't arrest him. Why then, if the Lord is in the house, should our focus be on the sinner instead of the one who covers the sin? Therefore, if I were to rename this story, if I were able to go into all these Bibles and put uh, my take on it, it wouldn't say the woman caught in adultery. It would say the wise and compassionate judge. Now, I take this story to be parallel of what's happening in real time in the life of Jesus. So what what do I mean by that? The story is not about adultery as much as it is about judging. So the Jews had been incessantly judging Jesus, as I mentioned, you know, waiting for an opportunity to arrest him with the intention of killing him. Is that not striking to you? I mean, it, it, think about it in terms of parallel. They judged Jesus. They judged the woman. They, they captured her. They arrested her. They wanted to arrest Jesus. They wanted her to be killed. They wanted him to be killed. And so what we have is a place where this poor woman is dragged by force into a public gathering place in the temple. She was humiliated. She was separated from anyone to protect her. She was judged and de facto sentenced to death without trial. All by these self-righteous hypocrites who wanted to do precisely the same thing. And oh, by the way, they did this for precisely the same reason. So that they might find a charge against him. So that they might take him and kill him. Him. Now, paradoxically, uh, Jesus will, in fact, one day judge uh, the world, the living and the dead, and he will judge righteously. But at that time, he was there to seek and to save the lost. I would say at this time as well, he is here to seek and to save the lost. I have tremendous empathy for this woman Uh, That doesn't minimize her actions. Um, But at the same time, we should be aware that much more sinister goings on were happening that same day. 
And, and by the way, where was the man? And no, okay, the sins of others, including the man, including these hypocrites, uh, that doesn't cover, that doesn't justify hers. But that's not what this discussion is about. That is, it's not about how someone else can cover the sin problem or make us feel better about it. It's actually about the one who does cover the sin problem, Jesus Christ. Thank God that our Lord Jesus Christ covers sin, including adultery. So she was thrown before Jesus. I mean, you've got to think of this from a theological perspective. She wasn't just simply thrown before a rabbi. She was thrown before uh, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is the second person of the Trinity, the very one who either gave or stood by consenting the giving of Exodus 24, 14, not to commit adultery. But, you know, what happens is, in much the same way, Satan throws us before God and says, judge him, judge her. They are deserving of death. That's what Satan does. You know what, that, you know what Satan means, the word? Accuser. He is the accuser. That's what he does. He accuses people of sin. So why would we expect anything less from his minions, the Pharisees? I mean, surely in uh, his Jewish mind, in the Jewish mind, Jesus would say, stone her. A lot of you won't relate to this, so you may have to just take it by faith or look it up. But for a time, Barbara and I lived in a part of the world where this happens, where whether it's... uh, some sort of uh, infidelity or whether it's, uh, generally speaking, the daughter who gets out of line in accordance with the family, and she's killed, sometimes stoned, sometimes other things. But the thing is, is while we go, that's awful, that's terrible, (sighs) sometimes it's celebrated. And that doesn't, it doesn't fit in our brain. It doesn't work in our minds. We don't see that at all. And the truth is the only reason that we know Jesus wouldn't agree with this is because he didn't agree with it. Not because the society would not have. We have 2,000 years of Christian history in our hearts and our minds to say, no, This is evil. This is wrong. You don't do this. But let's look at Jesus' immediate response. It's fascinating. He stooped down and he wrote with his finger. Now, there are several possibilities this way. In fact, commentators love to speculate on this. And some of them are ludicrous, really. And some of them are interesting. I'll tell you where I'm at on this, and I'll tell you why I'm there. I think that he was writing down a record of sins against the people in the crowd. You may say, well, isn't that just as much a speculation as everybody else's? Not really, and I'll tell you why. Greek is my guide here. So for it, 
in ordinary language, Greek, when you were going to write something, you used the word to say, to I write would be grapho. It's where we get our word graphite, graphics, stuff like that. It's, you know, I write these things, right? That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is katagraphane, which one of the meanings of kata, K-A-T-A, is against. That's not its only meaning, but one of them is against, and it literally means against to write. And if I was just stopping there, you might say that's that's pretty thin. Well, I'm not saying this is what Jesus did. I'm just saying, telling you what I believe he did based on the language. Because if you go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you go to the book of Job and you read in Job 13, 26, it says, you write bitter things against me. Kata graphene. <laughs> You write against me. And so I think that what was happening here was that Jesus was confronting them with their sin. And I think it was probably fairly specific. But we do learn a few things about how they viewed authority uh, at that time. And, and of course, how they viewed it is not unusual. It's, it's fairly common. But ordinarily, when someone is brought to leadership, what they want is the full justice and weight of the institution to fall on that person, to condemn, to criticize, or to be uh, judgmental, for lack of the better word. That authority could be executed from mercy and compassion would never have crossed their minds. I have to go back to the guy. Where's the man in all this? I mean, this two-tiered justice system, it it just makes you sick. The affluent, the privileged escape while the less fortunate are punished. I mean, only the woman is brought to judgment here. And hear this well. And and this will help recenter this story in your mind. And that is this. At the center of the story is what happens when a sinner is brought before Jesus. And, And in this, we see the ripples of God's grace and mercy that extend to you and to me. In the text, there are two um, kind of voices, I guess, one might say, that argue, vie, that compete for our attention. One is the voice of condemnation. It's attractive to us. Someone is judged in the, the whistle down the wind. Someone has to pay. Someone, you can't let this go. Someone has to pay. And we feel this very deeply. But then there's this other voice of Christ about compassion and forgiveness. It's important for us to remember that in Christ's business, he always, in doing justice, remembers mercy. So what voice do we listen to? Do we condemn or do we extend grace? These things are tough if you're really in something. Right? I mean, I understand that some of uh, this is difficult to... Here. I mean, do we create mental scarlet letters 
that we brand people for life? Or do we see the cross of Christ instead, where we see that my sin, as well as that other person's sin, was nailed there so that we might have life instead? So in contrast, the voice of Christ does not confront us with other sin. You know who's? <laughs> it confronts us with our own sin and how we need to live in this fallen world, not telling other people how they need to live. This passage, listen, does not minimize the sin at all. But what it does is it puts it into a context where we can easily see how Christ handled the sin instead of these leaders who were using malice and hatred and deception in order to entrap Jesus and still be justified in their own hearts and minds. Now, unfortunately, this passage has been used by a lot of people who want to justify their sin. You know, you've heard this before, all of you. Some of you may have said it. Who are you to condemn me? <laughs> Don't throw the stone unless you're without sin. So we throw it back. The arrogance of that entirely misses uh, the point of the story. The woman was guilty. That was, that was never at issue. The depravity of the Pharisees did not make her any less guilty or any more guilty. The law of Moses called for punishment. And this is what our modern minds don't understand very well at all, is that sin must be punished. But the Lord of the law provided a way. In John 1, 9, he says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lord created a way. Again, it should be obvious to us that this woman was not accidentally caught. They laid a trap for her, too. These were some wicked, deceitful people. And if she got destroyed because of it, who cares? We got Jesus. In other words, they didn't care about adultery. They cared about trapping Jesus. They wanted to create a situation where Jesus had to choose between the law of Moses and Rome. And that would put him into a problem. But Jesus never broke the law. Therefore, what he did next did not violate the law. I'm inside the woman's heart. Because I... I I guarantee you, in that day, in that culture, this was not the first time that she had witnessed this. You think she was the first woman that was ever grabbed and hauled out and stoned? No. Not at all. Inside her was the doom. Death was on her. She knew her fate. But then suddenly she's left, she's left alone. I mean, it's just Jesus standing there. And Jesus stood up and said to her, the woman, 
Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Hear this and hear this well. You've heard it before. You will hear it again. Jesus does not punish you. Whatever you're going through right now, this is not punishment. It may be discipline. It is not punishment. Because Jesus was punished for you. The punishment of God resided on Jesus Christ on the cross so that you would be free from his wrath. It was within his right for Jesus to have agreed to this woman being put to death. But instead, he revealed his heart to her, to those around, to us. He forgave her. He took her place on the cross to die for her sin. Don't let this, don't let this be too far from you. Like her, our fate was sealed. Our doom assured. Those who think differently need to look at the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. That should be our mantra every day. So that we don't put ourselves over others. We're not so different. We're sinners saved by grace. And while we do tend to deny and diminish and blame others for our sins, Jesus died because of it. And through his death, he lifts condemnation from us. He told this woman... That he did not condemn her like her. Can you imagine going from death to life in a moment? Can you imagine how she felt leaving the presence of Jesus at that moment? As close as I can come to it is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no. Hammer that word in your mind. No, no, not some, not a little bit. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus gives dignity. He not only forgave her, he called her woman. And we think, oh, that's not really close. That's the same word that he used when he talked to his mom. In other words, he didn't call her a name. Or anything less than who she was. He treated her with dignity and treated her with respect. And he gave her a second chance. With Jesus, there are second chances, but I'd go out on a limb. And it's not a skinny limb. <laughs> it's a strong limb. But there are third and fourth chances. In other words, as long as you're alive, Jesus wants to bring you to himself. Whether you're without 
having trusted Christ or having trusted him. He wants to bring you close to him. He's not simply interested in what you have done wrong or what you have been. He's keenly interested in what you may become and what you could be. He's not saying that what you've done doesn't matter. He's saying that what you could be through Christ matters more. Father, we are so grateful that even in our sin, you saved us. None of us is pure, Lord. None, not one. While we were sinners, you died for us. Uh, your judgments are pure. Your judgments are true. And Lord, we thank you that during this time, there is a seeking and a saving that's going on rapidly every day. But that time is not forever. There will be a day when you stand as judge. And as horrid for us from our perspective as this may seem, I think on that day when that judgment is made, even those who are judged will say, Jesus does all things well. We thank you, we praise you, we give you the glory due your name, through Christ our Lord, amen.